This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Okay, so originally when um, I was given my brief for this talk, um, I think the idea was to talk about these verses, but it was also to talk about forgiveness. So I'm going to kind of talk about that, but really I think what this talk about is about happiness. Um, If you've been to Tiratnaloka on a Transcendental Principle retreat recently, you'll know that towards the end of the retreat we do this um, thing in the last puja, where we all read out our favourite um, sentence or our favourite bit from, from the, the survey. And this is the bit that I, nine times out of ten, this is the one that I choose. So this is from Banty from the survey. Happiness can be attained either when existence accords with our desires or when our desires accord with existence. <laughs> True, the second alternative is difficult, but the first is impossible. <laughs> If we cannot gain happiness but by refashioning the world, we shall have to find it by reforming ourselves. So I think this was a very major motivator for me when I decided to learn to meditate. That's how I first came in contact with the movement. I think I realised I was unhappy to some extent anyway, and I wanted to be happy. That was the bottom line. Um, And I think the fact that I chose to learn to meditate was a sort of a a tacit intuition that I needed to reform myself instead of continuing to try and refashion the world. So I I often think that, you know, when we talk about the the five um, emphases of the Dharma life, the spiritual death one, I often think that a little bit of spiritual death or insight actually does come into play in our first involvement with the Dharma. The fact that we choose to do that is a little spiritual death, I think. I think we, we seek out the Dharma because probably on some level we've started to see that conditioned existence is unsatisfactory, however dimly that little insight might be. And of course, refashioning the world doesn't mean necessarily refashioning the physical world or um, the, in, the organic world or whatever. It tends to mean refashioning other people, doesn't it? <laughs> refashioning the world means um, changing other people. So that's the thing that uh, we start to realise that... Um, it's not going to be so easy to do. Maybe we need a different strategy. So, um, again, when I started to learn to meditate, I think I was very, very struck straight away by the metabodhana. It was the second practice I was taught, but it really, you know, sort of hit me very, very strongly. Um, and I always had someone to put in the fourth stage. There were loads of people that I loved to hate, and I felt I was absolutely justified in doing so. Um, famous people and less famous people I thought that I was in the right they were in the wrong but at the same time I think I did understand again just sort of (coughs) dimly intuitively that hating them was making me unhappy Um, so ill will and resentment were very strong hindrances for me when I first learnt to meditate Um, and certainly when I first went on the GFR retreats at Tiratnaloka I remember once I started to get a handle on the ten precepts and we were starting to do confession. It was always the ninth precept. It was always the hatred one, the ill will one that came up. Everything seemed to boil down to that. Um, 
And it still does come up um, to some extent, but I must say, I'm happy to say this, that it comes up a lot less than before. It's actually dwindled to, to some extent. So, you know, the Dharma works, I suppose. I'm not saying I'm completely over it, by the way, but uh, I do feel happier as a result of feeling less ill will and resentment. Yeah. So I'm sort of talking, I'm starting really by talking about what it is that motivates us to practice these precepts. As Ratnadharani said yesterday, they're, they're tough, these ones, and are a bit counterintuitive. And So why would we choose to do it? You know, why would we bother kind of thing to challenge ourselves in that kind of way? Well, some people I think are probably a bit less self-centered than I am and have a, a very, very strong motivation to alleviate suffering in the world. And although I did care about this when I was younger and came across the Dharma, I think my stronger motivation, if I'm, if I'm really honest, was um, my stronger motivation for wanting to reform myself was my own well-being. However, um, I had a very interesting experience several years later, actually, when I was on solitary retreat on the Isle of Jura. Um, and it was, um, I was there for three weeks and the weather was absolutely fantastic, which is very, very unusual in the Isle of Jura, as you can imagine. But it's beautiful weather for practically the whole three weeks and the place was just stunning. I mean, it's such a lovely environment. And it was during the time when I was um, working for Karina in India. So I'd been to India and I'd come back to the UK for a break and I was on solitary in Jura, this beautiful setting, fantastic weather. I was walking along the road one day just thinking, oh, this is just wonderful. Everything's perfect. In theory, I should be happy. This is it. I mean, I couldn't ask for any more than this. And yet I realized I couldn't quite let go into that because I was just very conscious of things I'd seen and witnessed, people whose stories I was aware of in India, um, the extreme suffering of people, you know, the kind of living conditions people have and the discrimination that people were facing. And I think that, again, was a little insight. It was a little understanding that actually having perfect conditions for me, it still wouldn't do it. That, that it is possible temporarily but it still wouldn't do it, that um, just knowing that there were others in the world who weren't sharing that sort of happiness, just that, you know, it just didn't work. I was reading a talk in preparation for giving this talk um, that Ratna Gosha um, gave several years ago about Kshanti. He gave several talks at the LBC about Kshanti. This one's called The Helpful Enemy. It's very, very good. This is what he says. This little bit that really jumped out at me. He says... Um, we may imagine that we can be happy and fulfilled in isolation from others, regardless of how they are or how we feel about them. But this is a delusion. In reality, we're intimately connected with all other living beings, and particularly with all other human beings, and our well-being depends on their well-being, or at least our well-being depends on our sincere wish for their well-being. Then he says something which really jumped out at me. This interconnection of our destinies is due to the nature of consciousness. Consciousness is not in reality split into myriad bits, even though it manifests through a multiplicity of forms. Consciousness is non-dual. So that's what Ratnagosha says. And in one level you think, well, yeah, that's quite simple, that's quite obvious. But there was something about it that sort of stopped me in, in my tracks. And it was this thing about consciousness being non-dual. Again, I think Subhadramati referred to um, Bhante's Why I Am a Buddhist talk um, yesterday. And um, 
that thing about um, it's possible for any human being to be friends with any other human being. In that talk, Banti says he believes that humanity is basically one. And I just thought, maybe there's more, more to this than I think. You know, maybe the, this goes deeper than I really have thought before, this thing about consciousness being non-dual and humanity being one. Anyway, it was something that, um, that sparked me off. We're much less separate from one another than we think. Yeah. So this is the wisdom foundation of the Bodhisattva ideal. Uh, and of course, these eight verses um, are for training the mind of would-be Bodhisattvas, which means us, doesn't it? So some of us, um, like me, might be motivated by our own happiness. Um, others, um, more perhaps by the happiness of others or the well-being of others. But ultimately, it amounts to the same thing. We can't have one without the other. So I'm stating what we all know to be true. We wouldn't be in the order if we didn't know this already. But I think I found it extremely helpful to reflect on actually how this plays out in my own life and to really just try and see this a bit more deeply in my own experience. Um, that my happiness really does depend on a sincere wish for the well-being of others. I think we need to know this, um, sort of experientially, that it's a fact before we're going to really, really go for it in terms of reforming ourselves. So these three verses um, from um, the eight verses that train the mind that I'm going to be looking at, verses four, five, and six, I'll just read them out to you. So verse four says, whenever I see ill-natured people or those overwhelmed by heavy deeds or suffering, I will cherish them as something rare, as though I'd found a, a priceless treasure. And then verse 5, whenever someone out of envy does me wrong by attacking or belittling me, I will take defeat upon myself and give the victory to others. And verse 6, even when someone I have helped or in whom I have placed great hopes mistreats me very unjustly, I will view that person as a true spiritual teacher. So when I was reflecting on these verses, I thought, well, what do they have in common? Why these three together? And it strikes me um, that in all these three instances, one could be forgiven for feeling ill will towards people who've behaved in this way. So in a way, you could say that ill will's justified in these instances. You know, um, I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't even had a part in their behaviour. Um, I certainly haven't deserved it. In fact, I deserve the opposite. If we look at um, verse 6, someone I've helped greatly, I've deserved the opposite. So it's, um, yeah, ill will is, we could see ill will as being justified, and of course that's a wonderful um, ground on which to feel righteous indignation, really wallow in that. Um, I remember years ago, um, a when um, a, f a good friend of mine, who some of you might remember, a woman called Zoe Crossland, um, she was dying of cancer and she moved to Sheffield. And um, I went to visit her shortly before her death. And I stayed in Samavahita's house. Uh, Samavahita was away at the time. And Samavahita had this um, uh, piece of paper stuck onto her fridge, obviously to bear, bear this in mind, which said, there is never any justification for a negative mental state. <laughs> there is never any justification. There is never any justification for a negative mental state. That's what it said, As, and I've I remembered it. Obviously, this is you know twenty odd years ago, but it stuck. So, do we really believe this? 
Is there never any justification? <laughs> That's something we might want to look at in our chapters. So on the level of views, if we do think there are exceptions to this rule, extreme cases or, or whatever, um, well, to what extent do we take on that ill will in the form of righteous indignation will be a bar to our happiness and to that of others? It'll get in the way of our well-being and the well-being of others. Do we believe that? Or do we think it doesn't really make much difference? We might not disagree with the view, but do we always know when we're experiencing ill will? I think it can be quite a big taboo, anger and ill will and hatred. Um, maybe, maybe for women more than men, I don't know, but... Um, something about that. I, I know that Tiratnaloka are often on retreats, um, particularly when people are a bit newer. Um, if they're telling me about some difficulty they've had with someone, they said, but I just try to bring compassion to them. <laughs> no. um, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very positive um, um, desire. But I think sometimes um, we can try to uh, bypass our anger and ill will because we see it as something that's unacceptable. Um, and actually acknowledging it is the first step to overcoming it. Uh, it's something that I do sometimes. If I feel a bit rattled or something, I just say to myself, are you angry, Shantavadri? Even just a little bit. And just try and sort of give myself the, the space to work out if that is in my experience, even quite mildly. I don't experience <laughs> strong, explosive anger to any extent like, uh, to the, anything like the extent that I used to, but even just a little bit. It can just be helpful just to spot it. So again, this could be something to think about in our chapters later on. I think for me, an important point, turning point in my spiritual life has been recognising that seeing and acknowledging men negative mental states is a positive and ultimately joyful process. It's actually, yeah, so it's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it, in a way? And, you know, as order members, we all know this, I imagine. But I wonder if we could take it on a bit more, take it on a bit deeper. Um, if we have a confession practice, I, I, I do have a weekly confession practice with Rajasaki, and I find it enormously helpful. And sometimes I can feel a bit sort of mildly disappointed if I can't think of anything to confess. <laughs> well, just because it's, it's such an opportunity um, to sort of get your teeth into something, to start to sort of... As that, that lovely simile of pull the hairs out of the plug hole, you know, sort of see what's going on beneath, beneath the, you know, beneath this, the surface. It's going deeper into um, levels of, unconsci of, of consciousness that we're not so aware of, and we can only benefit from it. Um, so it's, I think it's just really important um, to, if we have anything to confess, to look to see whether we have anything confess, to confess and rejoice in that, not because. It proves that we're a bad person, but because actually it's the process of freeing ourselves, isn't it? So, yeah, just to really urge us all to make uh, the most of confession as a practice, I found it probably one of the most transformative practices I've done, actually, since I became a Buddhist. So, um, these verses, 4, 5, and 6, they're getting at, at this sort of area. They're getting particularly at people... Um, where, you know, we perhaps wouldn't necessarily acknowledge that we felt angry or that we wouldn't see it as a problem that we felt angry towards these people. Um, people who are disagreeable and have treated me badly under no prov provocation from me. 
And it's also getting at the fact that they're, um, well, what it's seeing is that they're things like a priceless treasure and a true spiritual teacher. So it's this thing, it's a, it's a real opportunity if we've got these things going on in our lives. Painful, horrible, we don't want to look at them, but actually they're a fantastic opportunity if we can only turn towards them. Because they show me where I bump up against the limits of my own practice, where I separate myself off from others and behave as if consciousness was indeed, in fact, chopped up into little bits and I'm a separate little bit from that person. So if they're a priceless treasure and a true spiritual teacher, then they're an opportunity for insight into the true nature of reality. So verse 4, the ill-natured people one. Whenever I see ill-natured people or those overwhelmed by heavy deeds or mis- mis- um, heavy misdeeds or suffering, I was wondering, now, well, who do I see as ill-natured people? It might be interesting just to see who pops up in your mind, what sort of people. The, the one that sort of immediately came up in mind, came to my mind is um, when a crowd of blokes get onto a train after a football match with the cans of lager in their hand and start to make a racket. Or the group of um, girls going from Newcastle to Manchester on a hen night get on and start popping the, sh- the champagne cup. Not exactly ill nature, but when they you know, behave in ways which I, I really don't like, I just want to sort of, I get into this inner battle. Do I just sit and bear it or do I go and move to another carriage and why do they behave like this and these people who speak on the mobile phones in the quiet carriage and all these sorts of things this is, these are sort of mild things sort of mildly mildly inconsiderate I suppose of course it could be a lot worse couldn't it, it's, it's all on a spectral spectrum, there are people whose behaviour can be quite cruel, malicious even sadistic so it's a matter of degree isn't it I would say um, so it's saying um, in, the, in the verse that um, people are overwhelmed by misdeeds or suffering. So um, an approach that often works for me when I'm sort of reacting to somebody who's behaving in a way that I don't like is just to ask myself, well, have I ever done anything like that? However mild, but have, have I ever been in their shoes? Um, and certainly, you know, I, I can usually, nine times out of ten, remember times when I have done something similar to that, maybe a long time ago, but, you know, I've, I kind of know what it feels like. Um, certainly when I was um, a student, I disturbed our neighbours with noisy parties, I remember that. Um, and the thing about the ill-natured was quite interesting, because when I had a broken arm a couple of years ago, um, it did make me feel quite vulnerable. And I went up for, for a walk um, to the reservoir at, near Tiratnaloka with my arm in a sling one day, and a man got out of a car with a dog and the dog was very bouncy and it bounded over to me and it was going to jump up on me and I shouted rather harshly at this, this dog, sort of dang dog, you know, sort of stupid dog or something like that. But with a real sort of harshness in my voice, really I was trying to sort of say to that man, you stupid man, you know, can't you see I've got a broken arm, keep the dog under control sort of thing. But then afterwards I felt quite ashamed because I thought, well, that was, you know, just the d- degree of harshness in the way, w- the way that I spoke to this dog and the guy and I thought afterwards well he could have seen me as ill-natured you know but actually what it was I was was frightened I was frightened I was going to be knocked over I was frightened I was going to be hurt so you know it doesn't if we reflect it doesn't take much does it to sort of know what it's like to behave like that which is not to excuse that sort of behavior in a way in ourselves but um, it's just to sort of move towards empathy we do know what it's like to behave in a way that others might perceive as ill-natured 
Of course, if we reflect on this um, quite a bit, you know, when, when have I behaved like that or when have I done something that's ill-natured, particularly the more sort of serious end of the spectrum, it could backfire on us if we're not careful. We could end up um, either hating our younger self who behaved in a particular way or even our current self in certain moods when we are not really on top of ourselves and we behave unpleasantly. So we do need to be quite sort of careful, I think, in looking at um, in looking at that, and do it with the help of our friends. So again, um, you know, we can sort of think. I was sort of thinking, well, this idea of the non-dual nature of consciousness um, could come into play here. So when we start to go into this sort of material, I think what we often end up finding out is the person that we need to learn to forgive is ourselves, primarily. If we're judging others very heavily for behaving in certain ways, it's probably because, you know, we just think it's completely unacceptable that we've behaved in similar sorts of ways. And so again, um, accepting our own conditioned nature um, and understanding, you know, what motivated us to behave and react in certain ways without condoning it. So it leads back to confession again. And... Um, this is where confession can go quite sort of deep when we start to confess, well, quite serious breaches of the precepts, maybe from the past or whatever. But we need to do it in a way where, which, um, where there's compassion present and our friends can help us have that if, if we find it hard just to not to blame ourselves for, for um, well, serious breaches of the precepts. And of course, ritual can help. And, and so where sadhana and the prostration practice and... Um, the bodhicitta practice, all of these um, practices can really help us work with this material to do this very deep work. So I was thinking again about um, people whose actions can seem to be unforgivable, um, extreme acts of violence, cruelty or whatever, um, you know, the, the sort of people that the press call monsters and fiends and things like that. It can be very, very painful even just to hear what they've done or to read about what they've done. Um, and Vajrasaki um, Akiratnaloka has been doing some studies um, into um, some psychotherapy studies, and she's been talking about um, a, a psychotherapeutic model where there's a, a triangle of the victim, the perpetrator, and the, uh, the rescuer. So it can be interesting just to notice which one we tend to identify with most easily. Do we tend to identify most easily with a victim? Do we immediately want to rescue? Do we um, identify with a perpetrator in certain instances? I wonder about the last one. I, I wonder whether how bearable it can be for us to put ourselves in the shoes of a perpetrator, particularly when they've done something very grossly unskillful, very serious, just to imagine what it must be like to be them. Almost un unbearable. Um, I think in some ways, when I hear of something very serious, you know, very serious sort of act of violence or something, in some ways I can even feel more distress in relation to the so-called perpetrator because <coughs> they're going to have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And it's going to be very, very hard to, well, I mean, one can work through these things, but a very sort of heavy burden to bear so I wonder if sometimes we just don't find it very easy to go there and again you know if there's something that we're ashamed of and really wish we hadn't done but have to live with um, 
might not be as serious as some of the things we read about or see in the news, but um, you know, we kind of know what it we can kind of know what it feels like to live with things that we really wish we hadn't done. So again, that's where empathy can start to grow, can't it? The glimmers can come in, we can start to fan the flames of empathy. So sometimes I think, you know, if something's very, very serious or somebody's behaved in a particularly um, cruel or, 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 well, a way that's, put it this way, um, somebody who's done something that seriously hurts, particularly somebody that we know and really care about, we can think that the person doesn't deserve forgiveness or empathy, that what they've done is too bad and they shouldn't be let off the hook. We can kind of think that if we empathise, then it's kind of like taking away from the seriousness of what they've done and condoning with what they've done. But I don't think it's quite like that. I think we need to sort of understand why we are doing these sorts of reflections, that it is in order to um, go beyond this perpetrator-victim uh, rescuer kind of model to something to something bigger where we can empathise and understand everybody involved in a difficult situation, ourselves included. Um, and of course, you know, understanding the conditions that gave rise to it is, is an important part of that. Um, with non-violent communication, one of the things, one of the, um, I suppose, teachings, if you like, of non-violent communication that I found particularly helpful in this regard is um, the teaching about the difference between needs and strategies. So, you know, the need being something that's um, a shared need, something that everybody would recognise, a value, if you like, a human need for whether it's something like um, connection or affirmation or um, autonomy or whatever, those sorts of needs that nobody could really argue with, that all human beings long for, want, etc. But um, we have different strategies in order to try and meet those needs, and some strategies are absolutely disastrous for ourselves and for others, you know. So it's, it's something about seeing the difference between those two things, I think. The other, um, I think it also comes from MVC, this uh, particular image of um, the two mountains, being on your own mountain or being on someone else's mountain. I don't know how familiar you are with that, but just a sort of an idea that it's almost like we're sort of living on a, on a mountain, um, our own mountain, and we see the view from our mountain, and this is how the world looks from our mountain. But the, the next person is on their mountain, and things look completely different for their from their mountain. I do find that a very helpful image. So again, you know, it might be when we are getting into righteous indignation about something we've um, either experienced or somebody who's close to us, or we've heard that someone else has experienced, someone's been a, a victim of, to use that word. Um, when that's happening, um, do we go completely onto the victim's mountain and even deny the existence of the perpetrator's mountain? You know, are we just completely identified with one way of looking at things? Or do we think that we know what it's like to be on the perpetrator's mountain without being willing to go there with them, to hear their side of things? Or do we believe that we'll betray the victim if we even consider visiting the perpetrator's mountain? Well, this is, you know, the territory, isn't it? Because once we identify with one another of these positions exclusively, we have lost sight of the whole picture. Um, 
the whole picture is a very complex interrelationship um, between many different conditions, isn't it? So I think, you know, particularly in the order, with, I would say that there's an importance of learning to stay alongside everybody involved in a difficult situation or a conflict or whatever, staying alongside everybody in the situation and trying to find a way of empathising with all points of view. And we might need to dig deep to do this in some cases. It's not the same as saying that everybody was right for the way they behaved, we know this, but just empathising, just kind of having a sense of where the person might be coming from. Um, and if we don't fully understand what's going on for somebody else, it's helpful, I think, to notice where we're jumping to conclusions um, without any evidence. Um, important to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I think the best strategy in most situations is, is to hear from the person themselves, you know, what went on for them, actually, rather than just hear it secondhand. And that can feel a bit like we're losing clarity. Um, if, if we know who's right and who's wrong, or, you know, we think we know who's right and who's wrong in a particular situation, I think it can give us a sense of security and it can reinforce our own values. But I think there's a price to pay for that. Something or somebody gets left out of the picture. We end up doing somebody an injustice. So we need to learn to trust that empathy will give rise to the best next step forward. Empathy will give rise to the, the best outcome. Um, the, next be the, be the best next step forward that everybody can put themselves behind because they've been included. Actually, this term ill-natured is a contradiction in terms, isn't it, dharmically speaking? I was thinking of the song of meditation, the little bit about where it says, um, we, see our own, we see that our own nature is no nature. <laughs> um, our nature, our so-called nature, arises in dependence upon conditions and can change. So if you like, you could say nature is the same as sanskaras, isn't it? And of course, you know, they can change, they're not fixed. And I've just been on the Vajrasattva Sadhana retreat and, um, um, well, we were exploring very deeply um, our, the ultimate, that our ultimate nature is essentially pure. Ultimately, we can be enlightened. So it's interesting that it's, it's put in that way. In a way, it's put in a way that sort of would trigger a particular response, I think. Yeah. So these views about... Um, um, the purity, the, our essential purity, help us cut through a wrong view of original sin, and help us connect with the universal meta. So, verse five: Whenever someone out of envy does me wrong by attacking or belittling me, I will take defeat upon myself and give the victory to others. So, there's a lot in this. First of all, this thing about take defeat upon myself. Um, and give the victory to others. It's a wonderful sentiment, isn't it? But again, we need to make sure we're not bypassing. I've got a nice quote here from um, D.H. Lawrence. I've been reading The Rainbow, and there's this lovely quote that I thought, oh yes, this lovely little story just fits perfectly. It's about... Um, this, the story uh, focuses on... Um, the, the heroine's name is Ursula, and she's got a number of sisters. Teresa slapped Ursula on the face. 
Ursula, in a mood of Christian humility, silently presented the other side of her face, <laughs> which Teresa, in exasperation at the challenge, also hit. <laughs> Whereupon Ursula, with boiling heart, went meekly away. <laughs> but anger and deep, writhing shame tortured her. So she was not e easy till she'd again quarrelled with Teresa and had almost shaken her sister's head off. <laughs> That'll teach you, she said grimly. And she went away, unchristian but clean. <laughs> so, taking, so taking defeat upon ourselves comes as a bit of a health warning. Important not to bypass. We need to sort of get there in stages. I was also interested in the, in the thing about um, that the person is um, acting out of envy. They belittle me out of envy. Um, again, as Ratna Dharani mentioned yesterday, we're getting into this ter ter uh, territory of comparison, making comparisons that we are either better or worse or equal to others. So I think that's the eighth fetter, as far as I'm aware, in the ten fetters. So, um, you know, it's quite, quite a long way up in terms of um, the sort of the, the challenges that we need to face. It's, um, you know, it's, it's quite an advanced practice to go beyond comparison. Um, and I must say that for me personally, there's still a long way to go. Um, but again, I think it can help to acknowledge where we get into comparison, which, as Ratna Dharani so beautifully um, illustrated yesterday, it can feel quite sort of humiliating and petty and childish. But it's so human, isn't it? I was in a voice workshop recently, and um, it's just a voice workshop. We were just sort of playing around, but I noticed that um, I wanted to, to do well in it or to sort of have, you know, to sound well. And I just sort of caught myself because I was feeling a bit uncomfortable about it and thought, I don't know whether I want to go back to that tomorrow. It's a bit uncomfortable. And I just thought, Oh, it's just because you want to be the best, don't you, Shantavati? That's all. <laughs> just want to be the best. That's all right. You, you can go again. Just it's not just like knowing that. I, I could sort of put it to one side or something. So we, I think we need to sort of just be a bit sort of gentle with those sides of ourselves as well as seeing them clearly. It might also help us to see where somebody else might be coming from. So in terms of envy, I mean, I tend not to think that other people envy me. I mean, I, I don't, honestly, I don't really see any particular reason why they should. And I wonder if that's because as an only child, I, I don't really, I haven't really had that sort of sibling rivalry conditioning to the same extent as, you know, other folk perhaps. And probably, you know, people don't envy me. But maybe there's something in this, maybe it could be read a bit differently about um, where somebody thinks that I'm putting them down or behaving as if I'm superior or, or sort of dismissing them in some sort of way. So they might not envy me, but they might still, there might still be that kind of dynamic, that kind of hierarchical dynamic that, in their mind at least, that's, um, you know, causing a particular reaction or, or quite difficult. There's the same sort of territory. So probably, if that's going on, if I've behaved in a particular way that has given rise to that, probably they feel a bit humiliated. And that's why they're, you know, sort of belittling me or attacking me. So I think, again, we probably need to know how it feels to be humiliated in order to empathise with this, you know, just to go there, go there a little bit. And not turn away from shame and humiliation, but turn towards it. Find a, a kindly, tender place within us where we can kind of hold humiliation 
and not want to defend ourselves against it at any, at any cost. It's a working ground for a lot of us, I think. I think once we can do that a bit more, then it's easier to give the victory to others. We're sort of looking not to add their humiliation. And I think, you know, as a response, just sort of, um, once we recognise or have a bit of a sense that that might be how the person's feeling, um, you know, showing them some love or rejoicing in them a bit can just cut through any kind of, any of that kind of comparative stuff where they, they feel like we're not appreciating them. So I wanted to talk a little bit at this point about apology, actually. I thought it came into this a little bit, a little bit. Kind of comes into all of it, but in this particular bit, there's obviously something that's gone on. Somebody feels a bit kind of um, slighted by us, don't they? Um, so, um, confession and apology probably are particularly effective because they work against pride, work against us insisting that we're right or better than others, or at least equal to. You know, it sort of cuts through all of that. And confession also, I think. A, um, for me, a, a very strong reason to practice confession is that it, it gives rise to faith, it gives rise to shraddha, which is a very, very positive experience. It can completely change my mental states, um, even though it can be painful. It can be painful to acknowledge certain things, but often, as a result of confessing or receiving confessions, you know, I can feel myself on, on the spiral path, if you like. So it's worth it. it it's sort of experientially worth it, I think. I know that from my own experience. So I think it's impo- um, important in conflicts to, for us to practice apologizing for our own part in things because that's freeing and we can feel re- reunited um, with um, something. It might be the, this non-dual nature of comf- um, consciousness, but we feel more sort of like part of things again. It unblocks a block. But then we might ask ourselves, should we apologize when the other person hasn't? And when what we did was something little and what they did was something big, that wouldn't be fair, would it? So I wonder if there are any situations like this in our life that we might want to have a look at and think about in our chapter um, where we think we might have um, have something to apologize for, but we're not sure. It might be just that. Or we're reluctant to apologize if the other person doesn't. Or we think the other person's behaviour justifies our reaction, so why should we apologise? Or whether we kind of know that it would be good if we apologised, but we're just not ready to. We need a bit of a process around it. There might be others as well, but those are some that we might look at. Do we really believe that apologising for our part in things, irrespective of whether the other person's taking responsibility for their side, will benefit us and them? Do we really believe that? We might not know. We might have to try. Um, It might be worth reflecting on what's been our experience of receiving an apology. Well, I mean, I know that when that happens with me, when somebody apologises to me for something, something I have felt a bit hurt about or upset about, it really feels like somebody's come to my mountain. I haven't even had to ask them. They've just come there. And I feel like I've been given a gift. I feel very grateful to the person for doing that. And immediately I feel completely different about them. It just completely softens (coughs) any um, residual ill will or whatever. So I suppose the question would be, 
you know, can we offer that to somebody else? It's a very creative thing to do, I think. Um, and it's, it's great if we can do it unconditionally and not dependent on their response. Although, as I say, it might be a, that might be a process. Verse 6. Someone I have helped or in whom I've placed great hopes mistreats me very unjustly. So again, Ratna Dharani touched on this yesterday. It brought up the question for me, well, what is my motivation for helping people? How conditional is it? Do I help people so that they'll like me and be kind to me, always be on my side? So it links to the bit as well about placing great hopes in people. What is it we're hoping for? Do we hope that they'll always love me and care for me, stand by me, see things from my point of view? Or even help me with my work, take it over from me, do it well? Um, So, you know, has our help and kindness towards that person been based on self-interest at all? Even just wanting them, you know, wanting a newer person who's joined the order who we've helped just wanting them to be a good order member or whatever, you know. And probably it's 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 quite natural that we have these kind of um, invest investments in people. But people will let us down. People are not a true refuge. They have their own lives and conditions. They, they're on their own mountain. Sadly to say, they don't exist mainly for my benefit. I have <laughs> learned this at some cost. And it can actually be quite a bitter experience, I've found. But it's also, if we can sort of turn towards it with a sort of a softness, it, it can be quite a tender experience. It's this whole thing about betrayal, and there's that wonderful essay by James Hillman, isn't there, about betrayal? If you haven't read it, it's uh, worth reading. And Hillman's talking about betrayal as being like a rite of passage from naivety to maturity. Um, and I think it's important to learn in these kind of instances to, to feel the feelings around this um, and not become cynical. In a way, it's a bit akin to having one's heart broken in love, isn't it? Um, it's quite interesting that um, in the Sufi tradition and also in um, some artistic circles, I think in Europe, uh, people have kind of consciously um, promoted unrequited love as a, as a path for development because of what it brings up. And it can also happen with children, I believe. I mean, I don't have any children myself, but I'm I'm sure I was uh, the source of this for my parents. Um, You know, that they placed great hopes in me and that I let them down and mistreated them unjustly. Um, And good friends, um, or people that, as I said earlier, people that we've brought on, people that we've befriended um, in the order and movement. So when this happens, you know, I think it's important to see it as a natural part of human relationships, actually, and not really, I mean the, the sort of the betrayal and being let down or whatever. It's not really necessarily that there's a fault on, the, on our part or the person who's behaved in this kind of way. But we just need to start to see things a bit differently, I think. Also perhaps remember times when we've betrayed somebody. And perhaps, you know, we might even decide to offer an apology to somebody who feels betrayed by us if, if that feels appropriate. I was also thinking that it's interesting um, the way these verses are phrased. It's it's really m- very much from the viewpoint of some of 
of me is from the subjective viewpoint of somebody who's been hurt. Um, it says things like, someone who's done me wrong, attacked me, belittled me, be- mistreated me very unjustly. So it's very much like, ooh, you know, I've been on the receiving end of this quite painful stuff. So, you know, I think when I was um, reflecting on this and um, preparing this talk, I ended up feeling quite sort of tender towards, well, towards us as human beings for our susceptibility in these kind of areas. So it can, you know, these experiences are painful, aren't they? So we can, there's an opportunity for compassion. Going back to me on the... um, on the Ten Pillars retreat at Tiratnaloka, confessing the ninth precept again and again, I realized during that retreat, a very important realization for me actually, that in order to change hatred into compassion, I couldn't stop hating somebody and start feeling compassion for them in one leap. <coughs> that I needed first to compassion, to con- somehow to con- contact compassion for myself. Um, before something could change. And it used to be something like, I would reflect something like, oh, this is what it's like to be a human being. Oh, this is a really painful feeling, this resentment. And then once I'd sort of softened into that and sort of opened my heart to that, it was a very small step to extend it towards the person I'd been feeling ill will towards. In fact, it often just melted away. It was that that needed to happen. So as I said in the beginning, this was meant to be a a talk about forgiveness, I think, originally. I don't know whether it has been, but um, a couple of weeks ago I was spending time with my dear friend Vajrasara, who's um, an NBC trainer, and I was telling her about giving this talk, and she said something like, well, she doesn't tend to talk about forgiveness as a thing in itself or whatever. She talks about it in different ways, and I can see why she says it. I can see why she said that. But I do wonder whether... For a lot of us, there is one person that most of us do need to forgive on some level, which is ourselves. So these verses, I think, are about unconditional forgiveness without any exceptions. But you could also say it's about unconditional empathy, unconditional love for ourselves and for all beings because we're not separate. And because this is an effective way of breaking through the deep bonds of self-clinging and transforming suffering into happiness, our own happiness and others' happiness. I'll read the three verses again. Whenever I see ill-natured people or those overwhelmed by heavy misdeeds or suffering, I will cherish them as something rare, as though I'd found a priceless treasure. Whenever someone out of envy does me wrong by attacking or belittling me, I will take defeat upon myself and give the victory to others. Even when someone I have helped or in whom I have placed great hopes mistreats me very unjustly, I will view that person as a true spiritual teacher. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you.